Welcome to the Pathways to Energy Efficiency and AEEE Production. I am Nitin Kesa, your host. When we talk about energy efficiency, we often use the term first fuel. What exactly does that mean and why it is so important in the context of climate action? Today in episode 3 of our podcast, I'm joined by Mr. Padupadmanabhan, author of the book First Fuel. And we will be talking about India's energy efficiency journey and why it is so critical for decarbonizing the world we live in. Welcome Mr. Padmanabhan to the podcast. I'm very happy to have you on our podcast today. Thank you Nitin. Uh, it's both a pleasure and an honor to be here at this podcast. Um I would uh, actually begin with a small preamble and then wait for your questions. Um the question I would like to pose um and probably we may discuss some aspects of it now is where would india's energy journey lead us in the next 30 years as you well know nitin the climate change challenge is the century's most dangerous and intractable threat it is dangerous because it places the health safety and security and economic well-being of the country and the world at large at risk it's intractable threat because it is largely due to the emissions of carbon dioxide from fuels 70% of the primary energy and 60% of its electricity is made through combustion of coal for instance you had made the point the first fuel and i'm often asked this question why and what does first fuel mean well the reason why i connected energy efficiency with the first fuel is that more energy has been saved through energy efficiency actions then has been delivered from the generation of heat from coal and oil and so on in fact the honorable uh, ex president of india abdul kalam called energy efficiency the fifth fuel and when we heard that some of us did some back of the envelope calculations and found that actually it should be the first fuel because more energy has been saved through energy efficiency actions than we have obtained from renewables or coal or oil um so with this preamble i would uh, then request you nitin to you know go ahead with the questions there is it's a very useful insight i didn't know about uh, dr kalam's uh, insight of talking about energy efficiency the uh, fifth fuel but i'm definitely sure like post discussions and now we see it and the way we call it the first fuel so a uh, uh, little bit for our audience uh, mr padmanabhan uh, it will be wonderful if you can just tell us uh, uh, what you have done and what you have been doing and like uh, where do you come from when we talk about the first fuel a little bit about yourself so that our audience gets to gets to know who what you have been doing all this while i was possibly among the first energy efficiency engineers in the country uh, got into this uh, career more by happenstance in 73 when i graduated from the engineering college in south india in trichy and uh, joined uh, the national productivity council as an energy efficiency or fuel efficiency trainee and uh, since then after working in the council for a decade moved on to work with the world bank in washington dc as part of the energy efficiency program which had just started off in early 90s and then returned back to india in early 2000 to advise the usaid on his energy programs 
And in the context of the bilateral NG programs with India, we had uh, designed with the government of India in partnership with various institutions, various energy programs, and some of it uh, was energy efficiency programs and some some of it was on the clean coal area and some in the power sector area. I um, separated from AID in 2013, moved over to Bangalore, and I live most of the time in Bangalore and occasionally visit the U.S. and have a home in Pittsburgh. Last year, due to the pandemic, I had a lot of time in my hands, and so did many of us, and I thought that maybe I should write a book uh, on uh, energy efficiency in India's journey on energy efficiency. And what motivated me to do so is a question that I would expect you to pose to me and I'll reply, respond to that. Right, I think, uh, uh, I think like the one positive, at, at least from the pandemic I do see is we've got this book out. So uh, your f- the book, your, the first fuel is a critical information tool in India's transition to clean energy. So first and foremost, we would uh, like to know what was the motiv- motivation behind writing this piece and the message you want to convey through it. Well, Nitin, um, if you enter the bookshop, you'll see endless rows of books on energy. Most of them are on the supply side of the energy equation, such as on oil and the international oil situation, on coal and India's domestic coal issues, on power sector reforms and regulations and so on and so forth. There are a few books, no doubt, on energy efficiency, but most of them are technical treatises let's say on boilers, on motors, on efficiency in buildings and so on and so forth. You know, energy efficiency manuals, energy audit manuals, case studies. So I thought that there's a need to articulate the process of energy efficiency, which has evolved in India over the past four to five decades. And this process was essentially a description of events, anecdotes, narratives, unsung heroes, and institutions, which have actually painstakingly worked in this area and built it to the point it has today. Some of it is known, but much of it lies buried. And it was very important for the younger generation to understand the motivations, the pathways we took, the mistakes we made, the successes that we savored, in the efficiency area over the past four to five decades. And I thought this book, First Fuel, and I've mentioned why I called it First Fuel, was a humble attempt to really share with the younger generation that we tried what we could. Now the baton has passed on to you guys to take it forward. And this is what we did. Now, clearly, There were very, very many people involved in the efficiency movement, although it began small. And it was not possible to touch upon each and every program and individuals. So I've had to highlight a few. And there is a chapter in my book called The Vital Few, Trivial Many. And I try to focus on the vital few. Again, it was not only energy efficiency, it was also areas which were related to efficiency. But at the end of the day, it all came down to energy productivity. And I'd like to talk a little more about it as we go along. Right. So uh, as you use the word uh, energy productivity, 
So for our audiences, I think that will be uh, a good starting point to understand uh, energy efficiency and like the way forward when we talk about, you know, like what more? I mean, like how do we perceive the world beyond energy efficiency and like uh, how do we go about? So I think uh, we would like to hear some of your thoughts on the energy productivity. Well, Nitin, uh, uh, I have uh, covered it in some detail in, in my book, but uh, let me kind of capture it in a few sentences. Energy efficiency is all about how energy is used. And there are ways in which industry or other economic activities can analyze how energy is used. You do an energy audit, you identify energy efficiency measures, you prioritize them, and then you implement the most promising measure. End of story. Now, if you have to go beyond this and look at redefining or reimagining energy efficiency, then you ask, you have to ask a different set of questions. The question you can pose is, what is the energy used for? The moment you ask the question, what is the energy used for? Then you begin to see the value addition that energy provides by way of the product that the company manufactures. Now, if you look at, at the macro level, energy productivity, which is actually a summation of the value that energy provides for a given economic activity. At the macro level, it is uh, derived by dividing the total GNP of the country by the energy consumed. If you go down to an industry level and look at the energy productivity of an industry, it is the revenues generated by the industry per unit of energy consumed. Now, you can increase revenues by increasing the value of the product that you produce. Let me give you an example. Do you have to manufacture mild steel or can you go all the way and manufacture precision tools which give you a better output, better value per unit of energy that you consume? Do you manufacture aluminum fuselages or do you just manufacture aluminum ingots because aluminum fuselages used in aircrafts could give you more value per unit of energy consumed than just making aluminum ingots. So there are many, many, many examples of this kind. It is not as though we are not doing it. We are probably done quite a bit in this area, but corporate India needs to now understand that energy productivity is now the a boardroom subject. And the challenge today is how do you move energy efficiency from the boiler room to the boardroom? At the boiler room, energy efficiency is well known and we can talk a little bit about the evolution of energy efficiency at the unit level. but. To move energy efficiency from the boiler room to the boardroom requires searching analysis and answer to the question of what value does energy energy bring? Right. Uh, this is very insightful. So uh, you picked upon the topic, you know, like uh, for the real change to happen, the corporates have to uh, take necessary actions. And we need to build the dialogue from the boiler rooms to the boardrooms. So what, uh, I mean, you have worked over a longish period of time in the same sector in the field. So I want to understand what has been the challenges and is India, uh, Indian corporates, especially in context of India, moving forward with that? Or they're still thinking on the similar lines. It's still a boiler room concept 
uh, for most of the companies. Very interesting question, uh, Nitin. And uh, the answer is it's a mixed picture. Generally, if one were to look at the efficiency movement in India and its impact on the industrial sector to begin with, because we started with the industrial sector, you, you'll see that we have moved a long ways. Now, just imagine energy efficiency as four quadrants. You have quadrant one, which I would like to call as quick fixes or first aid measures. And most Indian industry have, at least the large industries for sure, have incorporated a number of housekeeping measures to save energy. It was not quite like that when we began in the 70s, when we did our energy audits in Indian industry and elsewhere, that there were a whole lot of wastages and leakages which were visible to the naked eye. And my book describes some of that. But today, by and large, uh, industry has implemented most of the short term or what I would call as first aid measures. Then you have quadrant two. And quadrant two is what I would like to call as must do's. And this is something which requires some investment Return on investment is generally very high. You can get it within a year or two years. And again, the record of Indian industry has been good. This is like measures like insulation, measures like efficient boiler operations and combustion control, measures like steam economy in industries, um, efficient motors, efficient lighting, and so on and so forth. And today there are manufacturers who respond to these needs. There are suppliers of services who do this and Indian industry itself internally have been able to incorporate a fair amount of must-dos. The third quadrant is integrative energy design and I'll come back to it in a moment. And the fourth is energy transformation. In energy transformation, we are still a long ways off. And that's true not only of us, but also of the rest of the world. This involves circular economy, digital economy, uh, nanotechnology, and so on and so forth. But coming to quadrant three, we are knocking on the doors of quadrant three. And that's where I think Indian industry needs to now look at opportunities. Quadrant three is integrative energy design. Now, what does integrative energy design mean? Basically, integrative energy design means that when one actually implements an efficiency measure, one looks at its impact downstream and upstream of the measure. Let me give you a simple example. You want to save uh, efficiency in lighting. The normal process is you go in and replace your inefficient lamp, which may be an incandescent lamp, with a more efficient lamp, such as LEDs. The luminous, luminous efficacy of an LED is about 150 or 100, 200 uh, lumens per watt. For an incandescent lamp, it is about 20 or 25 lumens per watt. You save about 75% energy. But is that enough? Actually, you have to look at application efficiency. How much of the light which comes out of the lamp actually illuminates the task that you want to get lit up? If the application efficiency is low, then the overall system efficacy is still low. So here you have a situation where you have the technology, you have done the right step, but you have missed out on improving application efficacy. This is a very simple example. There are many, many more examples which may be a little more complex. You put up a insulation of pipelines in your facility, 
and that reduces heat losses but that also reduces the capacity of the pump which pumps the uh, water in the boiler which generates the steam through the pipes it also reduces the capacity of the steam boiler and now one can have capex savings in addition to operational savings and that's what integrative design is all about it involves analysis such like pinch point analysis integrated energy water uh, nexus approaches and so on and so forth and that's i think an area where you can get 20 to 30% additional savings in energy in addition to the energy efficiency savings by going in for integrative design over to you nitin right i think uh, this is a very critical piece of information for uh, young uh, designers who are building the next gen houses also so it's, it's a common example uh, especially in case of uh, delhi i'll say uh, in winters the houses we live in are cold throughout the day I, i won't say you know like even if it's hot outside it's still so cold inside and i'll definitely see uh, the application hasn't been done with the built material what they have put in i mean uh, they could have made it a little bit more conducive to the environment in that context uh, i mean there are definitely some more challenges around that but yes so uh, 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 t- talking about a little bit more i'm just going to take you back in the uh, india's uh, energy efficiency journey so the the question what i'm going to ask you is what was that uh, turning point in india's energy needs uh, and your expert opinion when you finally woke up to the concept of energy efficiency or uh, say more broadly to energy management this is for our listeners who want to see like how we evolved uh, as a nation and and we started talking about energy efficiency first well nitin there were several turning points and uh, let me capture the key turning points one your listeners would be surprised to hear and my book covers it in some detail that energy efficiency started accidentally in india and it happened uh, largely in, in in mumbai and the story goes as such it was probably the mid 60s and the textile industry in mumbai which was consuming coal and getting coal from bengal bihar were in a quandary because the coal had to come in railway wagons the wagons were not available all the time the wagons had to negotiate the steep inclines of the western ghats and also called quite a lot of storage area and even in those days uh, space was a premium in mumbai so the industry in mumbai were a little concerned that they were not getting the energy supplies through coal regularly and reliably at the same time around that time there were two refineries in mumbai so and burma shell private refineries both set up by the us and british and they had excess what is known as heavy viscous fuel oils or heavy bottoms which they did not know what to do with it they wanted to dispose it off and they said why not market it to the textile industry and textile industry said yes we will use it to substitute coal in our boilers but we don't know how to use oil interesting that at that time indian industries experience in using oil was very nascent so they did not know how to use oil so the planning commission was seized of this problem and they invited the national institute of fuel efficiency service of uk to come to india to work with the national procurement council set up a energy efficiency or fuel efficiency service which would provide this kind of advice to indian industry to move over from coal to oil so what was started as an energy substitution effort ended up 
finally as an energy efficiency effort because through the energy substitution effort, industry had to pull up its socks, had to be a little more efficient in the use of oil. And that's how the energy efficiency journey began. So that was the first turning point. The second turning point obviously took place in 73 when the oil price hike hit us. The oil price hike meant that oil, which was about 20 or 30 rupees per ton, uh, shot up to something like 90 rupees a ton. And the Indian industry was very concerned. And they said, you know, we are very efficient. And by increasing prices, you know, you know, our bottom line is getting affected. Even in those days, there used to be a quota system for the supply of fuel oil to industry. And every industry wanted its quota to be fulfilled completely. So in order to distinguish between who's efficient and who's inefficient, the government of India, through the Ministry of Industry, and at that time, we had a department in the Ministry of Industry called DGTD, Directorate General of Technical Development, which was actually part of the License Raj days. They used to provide licenses and letters of intent to industry who want to manufacture. They set up a standing committee on furnace oil. And this standing committee took a decision that they would have the NPC do a survey along with oil companies of all industries as to whether they are using the oil efficiently or inefficiently. And finally, it turned out after the survey, and I was part of the survey team in 75, 76, that many industries were not that efficient as they claimed to be. And there was a lot of saving potential, about 30 to 40 percent savings potential possible. So that was the second turning point where on account of the gaps they found in Indian industry in the use of energy, particularly furnace oil, the government took a decision to set up the Petroleum Conservation Research Association, which is the first institutional arrangement anywhere in the world focusing on energy efficiency and petroleum product conservation. And that continued. And in 17, and actually after 73, in 75, 76, Indian industry got used to the prices and there was a little level of complacency and we began to go back to our inefficient ways. But 79, when the second oil price hike took place, that's the time when, again, people took notice, some industries started um, being very proactive and the energy audit function began to evolve. And the energy audit function has become very sophisticated today, but it evolved in the 79-80 timeframe. And Indian industry began to set up energy audit functions. They set up at least some of the large industries, set up what I, what I would call as corporate energy management cells. And uh, they um, institutionalize energy efficiency in their processes. The third uh, uh, point, the turning point in India's energy journey was 91 when sector reforms took place the economy was reformed at that time decisions were taken which enabled industry to be independent of government regulations such as setting up of their own capacities say at that time for instance to give you a small example a paper plant which is 40 tons per day could not produce more than 40 tons because they were earmarked to produce only that capacity but a 40 ton paper plant is not as efficient in terms of energy use as a 800 or 1000 ton per day paper plant because the larger the paper plant is, larger its capacity, the energy losses as a percentage of uh, its capacity will be far less than uh, what it is for a smaller plant. 
there are irreversible losses which uh, actually one has to compute and uh, a large paper plant obviously has economy of scale and efficiency benefits on account of economy of scale. So things like that. And and there was modernization of Indian industry and so on and so forth. And that resulted in uh, a lot of savings. So that was probably the third uh, turning point. And then the turning points uh, became less, what should I say, sharp. You know, there were subtle changes following that uh, in 2000, 2005, 10, and then now a little bit on account of the fact that energy productivity is gaining ground. So, and then of course, we had the Bureau of Energy Efficiency and government directives and so on, uh, the PAT scheme for industry, and then you had the, you had the uh, green building movement, uh, the various Uh, green building associations were established and so on and so forth, which has all been described in some detail in in, in my book. So these were the other turning points. But the sharp turning points were the three I mentioned earlier. Right. So uh, what you said was, I mean, definitely covers like how we traverse from, uh, uh, I mean, like post-independence until 2000 and 2010. Uh, But if we just look at the decade back and not... uh, too much far. So what mm. do you see having some of the most significant accomplishments in terms of efficient energy usage in India, both in terms of industrial as well as domestic sector? Let me uh, talk about the domestic sector for a moment. Uh, I think I've touched upon industry quite a bit. Um, it's not as though industry has done everything necessary. I mean, a lot more needs to be done. But on the domestic sector, particularly in the building sector, I must say, and I must confess that when we were looking at uh, energy and fuel efficiency possibilities, and there were some very important uh, reports uh, of the government of India, which we had all participated in, uh, the building sector or the home domestic sector was not covered in any detail. In fact, I remember the Energy Conservation Interministerial Working Group, uh, which um, the project secretariat was with the NPC in 1981-82. We had a section on homes and buildings, and uh, the whole section was not more than a paragraph where we dismissed energy use in buildings and homes as something as insignificant. Uh, Just said that uh, power is consumed in fans and in kitchens, and, and that's it. But... Later, and I'm going back for the last 10 years now, or maybe a little longer than 10 years, uh, you know, I have a slightly longer time frame than you, Nitin. I'm much older than you. Um, In the turn of 2000, um, when we invited the U.S. uh, Green Building Council to partner with the Confederation of Indian Industry, uh, we actually sent a message. And the message was that Indian... uh, Builders are in a position now to embrace what's happening globally in the efficiency front. And that was manifested by the fact that the first green building, which won a platinum award, the first platinum awarded green building was in India, outside the US. At that time, in the year 2001, 2002, most of the green buildings were in the US and in Western countries. And the first platinum awarded building was in India. This is not to say, this is not to say, and I would like to underscore this point, and my book also makes it, that traditionally many of our buildings have been very green, right, from the Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa days. But let's keep that argument aside for a moment. So 
that i thought was the beginning of a movement Uh, the first platinum building 20000 square feet which has moved to now something like all over the country to about 7.5 billion square feet and i understand the indian green building council and uh, others are now planning to raise it to something like 10 billion square feet by 2022 that by next year that i thought was a major transformative effort now it does not mean and i know atripoli has been in the forefront of many of this activity it does not mean that uh, indian building sector and domestic sector is very efficient uh, you know there are very many more buildings which have yet to actually embrace the efficiency standards which a green building possesses but the movement is there and the direction is there and by 2030 hopefully uh, many more buildings would be uh, energy efficient so i think the domestic sector in that sense is well poised because there are examples and there are case examples and experiences on designing ground up a green building right so uh this is like for uh, people like you and i i mean like what a lot of our listeners are also the first time people who are understanding the concepts of energy efficiency so i have a few questions uh, of uh, which care with that so like one thing which i would like to ask you is how do we overcome the human tendency towards resistance to change to foster sustainable attitudes uh especially in the context of uh, energy efficiency we do see that like a lot of people are still averse i mean like i i for a couple of years were averse to climate action and climate change but now they start talking about it but energy efficiency is still a niche so uh, when how do we do that how do we overcome the human tendency towards resistance in this context i think that's a very important question and we have learned something from our past you see the feeling for a long time in india especially when we began our efficiency movement was that we need to build awareness and we need to sensitize people sensitize sensitize corporates and so on and this was the effort in much of the 70s and 80s and even to this day uh, often time one hears about creating awareness but there's evidence now to show that awareness building though important does not lead to energy savings on the ground yes it has an impact but the impact isn't as large as one would imagine so awareness building is important but there's a time when you have to go beyond awareness building and i think the time has come for that in india what is required the reason why people would save energy and there are three reasons and one is obviously it should hurt your pocketbook and i don't want to get down that road Um, no one saves energy from a sense of altruism you save energy because it makes economic sense to do so and that's one but there are two other factors the other factor is evidence see people are prone to take on a measure which is in their self interest if there's evidence and the evidence should not necessarily be energy saving potential evidence but also what are the other cope benefits that come out of this now people are interested in quality of life industry is interested in the quality of the product and one can show that efficiency improves the quality of the product or one can show that efficiency improves the quality of life improves your health reduces absenteeism improves labor productivity and so on and so forth people are more motivated towards energy efficiency so evidence that such a measure actually improves things around you is important but that evidence by itself again is not 
enough. You need to do it in the context of what I would call a social intermediation, uh, where one actually exerts pressure through peer pressure through societies, through social groups. Let me give you an example. Um, I think it was in uh, 2002 or 2003, a private utility, a distribution utility adjoining Delhi. Uh, actually, we had an opportunity to visit and talk to their management. They were serving power both to urban areas in their vicinity, buildings, offices, and so on. And they were also serving some power to the rural areas. And they found that in the rural areas, it was very difficult to really educate people to save energy because uh, farmers are using pump sets and they're not using it very efficiently. They were not using water efficiently. Groundwater levels were falling. All of this was having an impact on the energy uh, consumed by the farmers. And since farmers are not paying much for the power, uh, the utility was running into a loss. So the utility was very keen in reaching out. At that time, I happened to run into a, a, a small team in Kolkata who were actually uh, street play artists. And we got to talking to them. And the street plays they were doing those days was in building awareness for AIDS, you know, the disease AIDS, and uh, building awareness on other social issues which uh, rural India, you know, is confronted with. They were intrigued by the idea of doing something on energy and water savings, energy efficiency and water use efficiency. And they designed a program for this particular power utility. They went out and actually implemented it, did a lot of street plays and and had, uh, you know, a modicum of success. And we did not know what the level of success was until a year later when there was an evaluation done. It was found that in the villages where they did the street plays and got the message across, the savings was quite significant and more significant than the technical savings which the utility had anyway performed, such as having high voltage distribution systems, efficient pumps, etc. You know, the utility was also investing in those areas and clearly they saved energy due to those technical interventions. But the intervention through the street plays, social mobilization and social intermediation actually was not insignificant. It was very, very large. And that taught me a lesson and taught many of us a lesson that when you deal with uh, audiences such as this, uh, rural India or decentralized audiences, then you definitely need to think of more potent mechanisms to get the message across. Right. I think of, uh, especially like as a communication student, I think that was something we just taught to us. Uh, for uh, rural India, I think still... Uh, the plays and theater plays a massive role for uh, outreach and uh, and i think it's such a strategy well which we're still using and we can't let that go away for a long long time uh, so uh, I, I have only two questions left which i'm going to ask you the first one is uh, more on an individual level so uh, we have talked about energy efficiency so i just want to understand uh, how do individuals like you and I bring small savings in our daily life that make a massive difference? How do we make energy efficiency our first fuel? Well, uh, part of it I answered in my earlier question, uh, you know, what is what will motivate an individual to, to save energy, you know, the social intermediation and evidence. But we must recognize the nature of energy efficiency, which is very different from the nature of energy supply. And this distinction, if you understand, then the answer to your question is very evident. 
energy efficiency is very decentralized it depends on individual action it depends on the housewife at home the car driver the transport operator the small scale industrialists and so on and so forth as against energy supply which actually is a very centralized decision um you know you really need four institutions to come together to set up a power plant you need the fuel institutions such as coal india you need the government of india and the state government and you need a boiler manufacturer and a utility manufacturer like bhel and they can come together put up a power plant okay but if you have to save energy putting up a power plant of 1000 megawatts is actually much much more simple but saving 1000 megawatts require the action of all these decentralized populists which i just mentioned and that is the challenge energy efficiency requires intelligence of a much higher order technology of a much higher order than what would require on the supply side and that point has somehow been glossed over or forgotten but that's a very important important point now to answer your question what do individuals need to do well there are several do's and don'ts which one can follow but the do and don't i find most interesting is to do without you see very early in my career uh, as a fuel efficiency engineer we like to call ourselves as industrial engineers in the area of fuel efficiency we were told can you do without you know when you do without it means at one end it means sacrifice and i'm not intending it to be sacrifice it might mean a bit of belt tightening but also it questions your value system do you really need this or and it fits in very well with the indian ethos that we can manage with less not because we want to have a wretched way of living but because we don't need it so we can manage with less so that's the first step which individuals take but i'm not going to push this point beyond uh, its logical uh, conclusion and say that the second point is individuals need to be aware of a number of practical steps that can save energy that too very many there are books available on that um, uh, there are checklists and so on and they can incorporate it i think i love the last bit what you said you know like to do away things i think that that that's something which i'm definitely going to resonate with because uh, as our lives get complex i mean from the smartphones to the other equipments i think uh, this thought process how we can be more efficient by just uh, leaving things aside i think uh, holds a lot of uh, resonance at least with me so, so that that's a, that's a good advice not only with in terms of energy efficiency at least i'm going to take it in a lot more perspective as well so uh, my last question to you mr padmanabhan uh is around i'm going to pick up your uh, sectorial expertise for this and it's, it's more of a comment so uh, we are uh, very close to cop 26 uh, uh Uh, it's just a couple of months uh, from now uh, and in the wake of climate change what are the most pressing issues in the energy sector that need global cooperation more than ever well there are several things uh, one needs uh, at a global level i began with a question uh, during my early comments so that uh, what uh, is the journey that india needs to take to move towards um, renewables and electric vehicles and so on 
But if I have to point at one particular area, uh, which India could definitely make a contribution, that is on coal and the transition of coal. See, if you look at it from the pre-industrial era to today, the world has heated up by one degree centigrade. And 0.3 degrees, or one third, is on account of coal and coal combustion. And much of this coal and coal combustion is in power plants. As you may be aware, Nitin, um, 60 to 70 percent of our generation capacity is thermal, approximately 200,000 megawatts or 200,000 gigawatts. And much of it is on coal. I think 80 or 85 or 90 percent is on coal, the remaining on gas. And this coal is contributing to a major part of our greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the the contribution that india could make is to transit from this coal but transiting from uh, coal is not simple it involves uh, various steps one is retired coal plants uh, need to be decommissioned and that i think the government is uh, planning to do so have already decommissioned a few power plants um, there's about 50000 megawatts of power plants identified for decommissioning and retirement But I'd like to go one step forward and say that why don't we repurpose these power plants? Because when you decommission a power plant, you have an impact on the social fabric of the place. People lose their employment, etc. We have to look at this coal transition from a just transition point of view and ensure that jobs are retained or repurposed or reskilled, or retrained and uh, it is done in a way which is environmentally sound and so on so repurposing a power plant what does repurposing a power plant mean to be very brief about it we can convert the power plant to solar uh, to solar power for instance uh, there is uh, land available uh, particularly in the cold storage areas and in the ash pit areas of the earlier power plant one can use that land to put up um, solar collectors and solar pv systems and so on but the advantage is that one can use the transmission and distribution system already in place also we must remember that renewable energy is variable and intermittent a coal fired power plant is essentially a very basic base loaded power plant it's like pulling your molar teeth you can't chew if you your molar teeth get pulled off so you pulled off a power plant you you will not probably be able to maintain the grid stability and grid quality unless and until you further invest in certain technologies that enable uh, the grid to be kept stable so this whole issue of um, uh, decommissioning repurposing and so on done in a just transition mode i think is a huge challenge for india i think that's something that india could do a major contribution and apart from our contribution on renewables our contribution on renewables is phenomenal we are planning to add 220 uh, 175 megawatts of renewables 2022 within a year's time and we're well on our way and 450 megawatts uh, 450000 megawatts by 20 30 uh, and th- these are all positive steps electric vehicles is another positive step but apart from these two positive steps uh, i thought that transition of coal uh, to move away from coal uh, would be a step that india could take
thank you, Mr. Padmanabhan, for say, sharing some valuable insights with us today. I especially like what he said. You know, the transition of coal is is a must, but it has to be a just transition as well. It was a, it was a pure pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, I hope uh, this discussion was uh, as insightful for our listeners as it was for me. To our audiences, we hope you liked today's podcast. We would love to hear back from you about the show and how we can make it even better for you. You can share your inputs on our Twitter handle at the rate A Triple E underscore India. Thank you for tuning in and take care. Until next time.